Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Patricia Goodwin. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheil Javeri. Hi, I'm Dr. Marjorie Mamsang. Hi, I'm Dr. Trisha Prince. We are the Pimanar Lady Docs, a group of four physical medicine and rehabilitation physicians who have created an educational and lifestyle podcast. Our first series is dedicated to Pimanar Board Review. In our second series, we discuss quarantine life and how the pandemic has affected us individually. In our latest on-call series, we interview physicians from different fields to discuss various topics of interest. Do you have any suggestions for us? We would love to hear from you after the show. Check us out on Instagram at PMNRLadyDocs or email us at PMNRLadyDocs at gmail.com. This episode is about stroke rehabilitation and is meant to serve as a study supplement in addition to your other board study materials. Whether you're commuting to and from work or just need to give your eyes a rest, this podcast covers a major board review topics that are commonly seen. It is also not meant to serve as a medical diagnosis podcast. Please see your regular physician for appropriate evaluation and treatment. In today's episode, we will be discussing risk factors, stroke syndromes, management, neurophysiological therapies, and stroke rehabilitation issues. So let's get started. What is a stroke? A stroke is defined by the WHO as the rapid development of clinical signs of cerebral dysfunction with signs lasting at least 24 hours or leading to death with no apparent cause other than that of vascular origin. Stroke is the third leading cause of death in the U.S. What are the modifiable risk factors? High blood pressure, TIA, heart disease, atrial fibrillation, diabetes, cigarette smoke, carotid stenosis, high-dose estrogens, hypercoagulable states, hyperlipidemia, migraine headaches, sleep apnea, a patent foramen ovale, obesity, and sedentary lifestyle. What are the non-modifiable risk factors? Age. After 55 years, the incidence increases for both males and females. Sex. Males are affected more than females. Race. African Americans are affected more than Caucasians, followed by Asians. And a family history of stroke. What are the two major types of strokes? The two major types are ischemic, which is 87% of strokes, and hemorrhagic. Correct. Ischemic strokes can be further broken down into thrombotic, 48%, mostly large artery thrombosis, embolic, 26%, and lacunar, 13%. Thrombotic stroke occurs during sleep, presents slowly, 50% with preceding TIA, Embolic stroke is mainly due to cardiac source with sudden immediate deficit. Lacunar lesions are seen mainly in the putamen, pons, thalamus, caudate, and internal capsule, or corona radiata. Hemorrhagic strokes can be broken into intracerebral hemorrhage, 10%, and subarachnoid hemorrhage, 3%. Intracerebral hemorrhages are linked to chronic high blood pressure with sudden onset of headache and or loss of consciousness. You can also see vomiting, seizures, nuchal rigidity. The putamen is the most common location. With subarachnoid hemorrhage, this is typically due to a ruptured saccular arterial aneurysm. Most saccular aneurysms occur on the anterior part of the circle of Willis. Compression of the adjacent structures, such as the ocular motor nerve, cranial nerve 3, with posterior communicating internal carotid junction aneurysm, or posterior communicating posterior cerebral artery aneurysm. Now here's another question for you. What are the signs of compression of the ocular motor nerve or cranial nerve three? You will get deviation of ipsilateral eye to lateral side. 
You would get ptosis, you get medriasis, and paralysis of accommodation due to interruption of your parasympathetic fibers in cranial nerve 3. Patients can experience a sudden headache, loss of consciousness, cranial nerve 3 or 6 palsy, and mortality is 25%. Risk of re-bleeding within one month is 30%. Vasospasm is a common complication occurring in about 25% of cases due to blood breakdown products. Nemotipine is a useful drug to treat cerebral blood vessel spasm. A vascular malformation in the brain consisting, consisting of a tangled mass of dilated vessels that forms an abnormal communication between the arterial and venous systems is known as an arterial venous malformation. Clinical presentation of AVM or arterial venous malformation rupture includes seizures and headaches. Now I would like to discuss the ischemic stroke syndromes. The most lateral aspect of the hemisphere is supplied mainly by the MCA. The most common cause of occlusion of the superior division of the MCA is an embolus. Deficits can include contralateral hemiplegia or hypesthesia, face and arm worse than the leg, and contralateral homonymous hemianopsia and ipsilateral gaze preference. With dominant hemisphere involvement, you can see receptive aphasia, which is supplied by the inferior division of the MCA to Wernicke's area and or expressive aphasia, which is supplied to the superior division of the MCA to Broca's area. Gerstmann syndrome affecting the parietal lobe consists of right to left confusion, dyscalculia, finger agnosia, and dysgraphia. The ACA supplies the medial aspect of the hemisphere. Deficits can include contralateral hemiplegia slash hypesthesia leg is worse than the arm, face and hand are spared, alien arm or hand syndrome, urinary incontinence, gait apraxia, abulia or inability to make decisions, preservation, amnesia, peritonic rigidity, Jeggen-Halton or variable resistance to passive range of motion, and transcortical motor aphasia with a dominant hemisphere ACA lesion. If both anterior cerebral arteries arise from one stem, Major disturbances occur with infarction occurring at the medial aspect of both cerebral hemispheres, resulting in aphasia, paraplegia, incontinence, and frontal lobe or personality dysfunction. The PCA supplies the posterior inferior surface of the temporal lobe and the visual cortex. Deficits can include contralateral homonymous hemianopsia, contralateral hemiesthesia, contralateral hemiplegia, contralateral hemiataxia, and vertical gaze palsy. Dominant-sided lesions can lead to amnesia, color anomia, dyslexia without agraphia, and impaired perceptual analysis. Non-dominant-sided lesions can lead to difficulty recognizing familiar faces. Central post-stroke pain syndrome, also known as thalamic pain syndrome, which involves the thalamogeniculate branch. The location of the cranial nerve brainstem nuclei is important when discussing the brain stem stroke syndromes. Remember, cranial nerves 1 through 4 are located in the midbrain. Cranial nerves 5 through 8 are located in the pons. Cranial nerves 9 through 12 are located in the medulla. Now let's go into the different brain stem stroke syndromes. What is Weber syndrome? So Weber syndrome is a cranial nerve 3, and remember that's the oculomotor nerve, palsy, and contralateral hemiplegia. What is Millard-Gubler syndrome? Millard-Gubler syndrome is ipsilateral cranial nerve 6 or abducens nerve and, and cranial nerve 7 or facial nerve palsies 
with contralateral hemiplegia, analgesia, and hyposthesia. What is Anton syndrome? Anton syndrome is bilateral PCA stroke that includes cortical blindness with denial. Good. What is lateral medullary syndrome or Wallenberg syndrome? Lateral medullary syndrome is a PICA stroke that includes vertigo, nystagmus, dysphagia, dysarthria, dysphonia, ipsilateral Horner syndrome with ptosis, anhydrosis, and meiosis, ipsilateral facial pain or numbness, ipsilateral limb ataxia, and contralateral pain and temperature sensory loss. Good. What is medial medullary syndrome? Medial medullary syndrome is ipsilateral cranial nerve 12 or hypoglossal nerve palsy with deviation toward the side of the lesion. Contralateral hemiparesis, contralateral sensory loss affecting proprioception and position sense. And what is locked-in syndrome? Locked-in syndrome is your basal artery or bilateral pontine infarcts affecting the cortical spinal and bulbar tracts, but sparing the reticular activating system. Patients are awake and sensate, but they are paralyzed and unable to speak. Blinking and vertical gaze may be intact in some patients. Exactly. Lacunar infarcts include pure motor hemiplegia affecting the posterior limb internal capsule, pure sensory stroke affecting the thalamus or parietal white matter, the dysarthria clumsy hand syndrome affecting the basis pontus, and the hemipresis hemitaxia syndrome affecting the pons, midbrain, internal capsule, or parietal white matter. Pseudobulbar palsy is caused by anterior internal carotid and corticobulbar pathway lacunas. You can see dysarthria, dysphagia, dysphonia, face weakness, and emotional lability. As far as diagnostic studies go, head CT scan without contrast is the study of choice when intracranial hemorrhage is suspected. Brain MRI is more sensitive than CT scan at detecting acute ischemic infarcts. Blood pressure management differs depending on the type of stroke. Labetalol and enalapril are favored antihypertensive agents for managing blood pressure after an ischemic stroke. For non-thrombolytic candidates, treat if systolic blood pressure is greater than 220 or diastolic blood pressure is greater than 120 or if the MAP or MAP is greater than 120. For thrombolytic candidates, treat if the systolic blood pressure is greater than 185 or the diastolic is greater than 110. In hemorrhagic stroke, IV labetalol is preferred as it does not cause cerebral vasodilation, which could worsen increased intracranial pressure. And treat if the blood pressure systolically is greater than 180 or the diastolic blood pressure is greater than 105. Nemotipine decreases cerebral vasospasms after subarachnoid hemorrhage and has been shown to improve outcome. Remember, you want to keep intracranial pressure less than 20 millimeters per mercury. Elevate the head of bed to 30 degrees. Reduction of the PaCO2 through hyperventilation is the most rapid means of lowering intracranial pressure. Mannitol reduces cerebral edema, and neurosurgical decompression may be indicated in lesions with mass effects increasing the intracranial pressure. TPA is indicated for patients with measurable neurologic deficits due to ischemic stroke within three to four and a half hours of onset of stroke, unless contraindicated. So please review the inclusion and exclusion criteria for TPA because there's numerous criteria. Well, and they're really important too. I mean, I feel like 
some of them are things that I wouldn't necessarily think about immediately either. Exactly. Intraarterial fibrinolysis can be used in select patients with major ischemic strokes less than six hours post-onset caused by occlusion of the MCA who are not otherwise candidates for intravenous TPA. Thrombectomy devices can be useful in achieving recannulization alone. Cardiac emboli is the best reason to anticoagulate in nonvalvular atrial fibrillation and mural thrombus from myocardial infarction. For patients with non-cardioembolic ischemic stroke, or TIA, the risk of recurrent stroke and other cardiovascular events is reduced with aspirin or aspirin with extended-release dipyridamol or clopidogrel. Crotted endarterectomy for symptomatic lesion with greater than 70% stenosis is effective in reducing the incidence of ipsilateral hemisphere stroke. Whew, that was a brain full of information. How about a few neuroscience jokes while you process all that information? What is a sleeping brain's favorite musical group? R.E.M. <laughs> ah, very good, R.E.M. If some of Fred Flintstone's neurotransmitters could talk, what would they say? Gabba dabba doo. Gabba dabba doo. <laughs> exactly. What did the hippocampus say during its retirement speech? Thanks for the memories. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> now that we've all had a good laugh, moving on to the neurophysiological therapies. The Brunstrom method uses primitive postural reactions and synergies to facilitate motor function. What are the Brunstrom stages of motor recovery? So there are seven stages. The first one is a flaccid limb. Stage two on the Brunstrom scale of recovery has some spasticity with weak flexor and extensor synergies. For this, it's important to understand that we're going to see flexor synergy in the upper extremities and extensor synergies in the lower extremities. In the third stage, we're going to see prominent spasticity with voluntary motion within the synergy patterns. In the fourth stage, we'll see some selective activation of muscles outside of the synergy patterns, and note that spasticity is reduced starting in the fourth phase. In the stage five, most limb movement is independent from the synergy, and spasticity is further reduced still, but present with rapid movements. In the sixth stage, we'll see near normal coordination with isolated movements, and in the seventh stage of recovery, we'll have restoration to normal. Exactly. Neurodevelopmental treatment approach, or the BOBATH approach, includes number one, the suppression of abnormal tone, posture, and reflex patterns. Number two, the relearning of normal movement through facilitating selective automatic responses. And number three, the adoption of appropriate postures for a given task. The proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation uses spiral or diagonal patterning techniques to facilitate the proprioceptive system. Constraint-induced movement therapy involves restraining the non-hemiplegic limb to force use of the affected limb. Constraint-induced movement therapy um, on a lot of documentation and stuff will just show up as CIMT. So if you ever see that acronym, just know that that's what it's standing for. Yes, good point. The RUDE method uses cutaneous stimulation, such as brushing or icing, to activate motor function and inhibit spastic antagonists. Do any of you guys know what forms are most frequently used by therapists today? So from my understanding, they tend to use the, a combination of the Brunstrom and the Bobeth techniques. 
the constraint induced uh, model seems to have fallen out of favor a little bit, um, although you will have some therapists that will incorporate that into uh, their patient's recovery. Now let's discuss some stroke rehabilitation issues. 70 to 84% of stroke patients with hemiplegia have shoulder pain. Post-stroke shoulder pain can be caused by inferior subluxation, rotator cuff tear, CRPS type 1, adhesive capsulitis, impingement syndrome, or biceps tendonitis. Other issues can include spasticity, DVT, bladder, bowel dysfunction, dysphagia, aspiration, aspiration pneumonia, depression, seizures, sexual dysfunction, and aphasia. The four fluent aphasias are Wernicke's, transcortical sensory, conduction, and anomia. The anatomic location of Wernicke's area is the posterior part of the superior temporal gyrus of the dominant hemisphere. Characteristics of Wernicke's aphasia include fluent speech, impaired comprehension, word deafness, alexia, agraphia, and marked paraphasias with neologisms. The four non-fluent aphasias are Broca's, transcortical motor, global, and mixed transcortical. The anatomic location of Broca's area is the posterior inferior frontal lobe of the dominant hemisphere. Characteristics of Broca's aphasia include non-fluent speech, impaired repetition, preserved comprehension, paraphasias, and articulatory errors or struggle. How did you guys remember the aphasias? I like to use the aphasia tree. Do you feel like that was useful for you to learn to draw out? Yes, yeah. I drew it I out definitely. <laughs> multiple times. Like yes. you draw out the brachial plexus. That's a Pretty good much. point. I think as soon as you get that scrap sheet of paper, drawing out the yeah, aphasia tree is really exactly going to help you. As soon as I sat down, they were like, oh, you can read through the thing. I was like, no, I'm going to draw my aphasia tree first. <laughs> <laughs> I drew it. Well... For me, it almost takes one question out of it. You know, when you get a little bit nervous, sometimes you forget stuff, but at least if you have the tree already memorized, Mm -hmm. you know that 100% that's going to be there. And I feel like, you know, it would make sense that if they do ask a question on it, you could just look right down at it and you'll have your answer very quickly. Yeah, draw that out draw your and draw your plexi out like before you even start because it just saves time and it's less, Mm -hmm. less stress when you're in the groove of answering questions. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So in conclusion, most improvement in ADLs occurs during the first six months. Poor prognostic indicators are severe proximal spasticity, proprioceptive facilitation response not present by nine days, onset of movement greater than two to four weeks, absence of voluntary hand movement at four to six weeks, or a prolonged flaccid period. Negative risk factors for return to work post-stroke include a low score on the Barthel Index at the time of rehabilitation discharge, prolonged rehabilitation length of stay, aphasia, and prior alcohol abuse. So that's all we have for you today on stroke rehabilitation. Of course, please refer to your other board review materials for more information. We did go over a lot in a short amount of time. Our references included Pocopedia and Cucurillo. And thanks to Advisor Science Tech Connect for such witty neuroscience jokes. And until next time. These views are our own and not those of our employer. Pima and Our Lady Docs makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. While the information contained within the podcast is believed to be accurate at the time of the recording, no guarantee is given that the information provided in this podcast is correct, complete, and or up to date. 
The materials contained on this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute medical or other professional advice on any subject matter. All information, content, and material of this podcast is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. If you're having a medical emergency, stop this podcast and call 911.